Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Podcast. Well, welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Podcast. I'm grateful that you've joined me. I'm recording this during the coronavirus crisis, and so I imagine you sitting in your living room or your office or with headphones on or beats or something, taking a walk and pondering what I'm saying. I really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate the focus, and I'm sorry for what you're going through. I hope you're making the best of it. I hope that you're surrounded by love and provision and not too fearful about the future. We will get through this, and I believe we'll be better on the other side. I want to talk to you in this podcast about some lessons we can learn from this coronavirus emergency, from this crisis that we are in. Some of you might think, well, it's a little bit early to be talking about lessons we can learn. I don't think so. Uh, Part of the reason is that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are involved in public policy. They're in government. They're in elected office. They work in our foreign affairs. And it's important for us to ponder these things now. Second of all, though, I think this crisis will end and maybe a little sooner than some of us expect. Certainly some of the more uh, outsized estimates, (laughs) I think, are way overblown. And so some may be surprised by how soon this thing uh, lands and allows us to return to normal. And it's important that we not simply assume that this was something bad that happened and that there's nothing to learn from it. We can learn from it. We can be better. And by the way, we can be better on a lot of these fronts uh, right now as soon as we realize these lessons. So let me list for you five lessons we can learn, I believe, five essential lessons we have to learn from the coronavirus emergency. Uh, Number one is that Overheated politics, the animosity between the left and the right, not only is causing problems right now as I speak, as liberal governors accuse Trump and Trump may be withholding aid to uh, certain democratic regions of the country and things of that nature. And if these aren't true, they're at least allegations. Um, But also, we didn't pay attention to the onset of coronavirus because a lot of people in the GOP and on the right assumed that this was some kind of liberal plot to unseat or at least embarrass Trump. Now, there's, there's enough blame to go around everywhere here, and I'm not just laying it at the GOP, but there's no question that our overheated animosities about politics in the United States got in the way of us seeing this clearly. Absolutely, people in the GOP thought this was some liberal conspiracy. Absolutely, uh, people on the other side began accusing Trump before the virus had hardly even hit our shores. Um, Absolutely, allegations blinded us to what was actually happening internationally. Uh, This is true. This is without question, and it continues to be an issue even as I record this podcast. Even now, as I say, uh, you've got state officials of, of, of the Democratic Party going at it with Trump and him going at it with them and it getting in the way of taking care of human beings. Now, listen, I certainly understand political passions. I certainly hold fiercely the views that I uh, maintain. Uh, but I have to tell you, it used to, we used to say that politics ends at the national boundaries, uh, that we don't take politics into international affairs. Well, we don't take politics into emergency response either. We don't take politics into the care of human beings who are suffering. They stop at our shores. They stop at the boundaries of medicine and rescue and emergency care. 
And so we've got to rethink this in this country. We've got to reset. And I realize we've got a man in, in the presidency who has a hard time not tweeting, a hard time keeping his mouth shut, a hard time not tooting his own horn. Uh, he's done some things well. He's done other things atrociously. But it's his manner that's causing problems right now, as it is on the party on the other side. Um, and so we've got to, as the people in America, we've got to insist on a different tone. We may uh, you know, watch cable news, watch CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and cheer on our favorite political champion as they breathe fire. But that breathing of fire is in the way now. That breathing of fire can cost lives now. That breathing of fire can get in the way of what we're trying to do to help people and to solve this crisis. So we've got to come to the conclusion that an bloated sense of political alliance, uh, political hatred, uh, political fire, uh, political allegiance, all of it got in the way and caught, made this this situation worse. And by the way, there's stink on both parties, as they say in the South, on this issue. Number two, we absolutely need to understand that we made disastrous decisions about outsourcing. This is on both both kinds of administrations, left and right. Uh, this is on Democratic and Republican administrations, Republican administrations. The reality is that we outsourced, and by the way, to China, um, which is almost an enemy in the world. China is almost today what Russia was a generation ago. We outsourced to China a huge portion of our medical care. And whereas it's up for debate yet as to whether China actually withheld information and withheld some medical uh uh, supplies to, to us when this crisis began, there's no question that we were not in a position to respond to the crisis because we did not have the resources we need. You don't want the enemy making your machine guns. You don't want the enemy making your medical uh, supplies. And there's no question, we already know, the, the, the jury's in, this is certain, but there are a lot of facts that will be debated and discussed and reported and written about in the future. But we know for sure and by the way, Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee has been making this case on the floor of the Senate, and she's absolutely right. You should watch some of her videos, even if she's not your cup of tea politically. She has been saying it, and she's been saying it clearly. There's no question. We over-outsourced, and we outsourced stupidly. We didn't outsource uh, the production of uh, medical supplies to Ghana or to Chile or to you know some other nation that uh, that's non-aligned. No. We outsourced to one of our, if not the one of our major enemies in the world. And it was a mistake. So we've got to bring that home. I believe in trade. I believe that when goods and services do not cross borders, armies do. Uh, I'm not in favor of a trade war. I am in favor, though, that we are producing within our own country the supplies that are essential to our survival, F essential foods, essential medicines, essential military hardware, other such things, essential technologies, and to outsource those things to people who are dubious at best about us, if not outright in competition with us, is suicide. Uh, number three is we have forgotten the issue of margin. What do I mean by margin? The idea that you can't just live up against your resources. You can't live with only a couple of days margin in your life. The fact is, we, we've seen the research, we know the statistics, most, most Americans, a slight majority, according to some surveys, um, only have a week or two of margin uh, beyond their their income, they are one as they as they as they say these days one paycheck away from being destitute. Uh, most Americans without government aid can't get past a week or two. Most businesses can't. 
And I understand the strain. I've certainly lived in my life, you know, with very little margin myself at times. But I do want to say that it's it's essential that we all begin to think differently about that. At no time in history uh, was would it have been wise to only have a week's worth of extra resources, a week, a week between you and the wolf at the door, as they used to say, um, a week before you're destitute. And businesses have done the same. There are going to be some pretty name brand businesses that will close as a result of this coronavirus crisis. And the reality is they didn't have to be closed for very long. They just didn't have margin. This is us getting, it's, a, it's allowing ourselves to get comfortable in our prosperous circumstances. It's allowing ourselves to just enjoy our prospects. It's what's coming out of our desire to allow ourselves to live uh, right up against the edge of our resources uh, and not think in terms of margin, not think that hard times might come, not think that like our grandparents and great grandparents did, that we needed to keep a pantry, that we needed to have a little money stuffed in the mattress, that we needed to have, um, be able to get through a month, you know, just a month with no income. I mean, that used to be just minimal. Some people say a year. I think that's extreme, but, but, but just a month uh, to be able to survive. Well, the number of people who can only get through a matter of days, the number of businesses who can't get through, uh, you know, a month uh, is absolutely stunning. And my point here is not to slap people around or or judge us, but simply to say, it doesn't matter to me if, if we return to the greatest economy that's ever existed on earth and there's unbelievable wealth, every individual and every, ind- and every business needs to have margin. You need to have a grandma strategy that I've described many times where you have extra food, you have extra money, you have extra resources, you know how to use tools, uh, you know how to live. You, you, you can go for a while without income. It doesn't have to be an economic situation or a virus. It can be a tornado. It can be an interruption of services because of some technical issue. It can be a terrorist action that's causing you to have to live uh, within the margin that you've already established. But we have learned because of our prosperity to live without margin, and we are paying for it now. So this has to be one of the great lessons of the future. And speaking of the future, uh, we have forgot, forgotten to focus on the future. Uh, as I have sat here in my D.C. home during this coronavirus season, uh, I've been on the phone with a huge number of leaders. A lot of people kind of look to me to advise and guide and be a sounding board, and I'm delighted to do it. It's a privilege. And one of the things that has come up that's fascinating to me is the number of churches. I'm going to pick on the churches for a moment, uh, although I'm a devoted church guy, uh, the number of churches that have had made no preparation for the possibility that they might have to conduct church online. Now, I want you to consider, we live in an age when it's possible to stream services with one person sitting in the front row holding up a cell phone. Think about that. I mean, I can, I can, I can sit there in the front row of my church, raise my iPhone 11, and stream the entire service, and, the, and it can be viewed the world over. Uh, that's how little preparation has to be made. Now, obviously, if you're going to do a more sophisticated shoot, multi-camera shoot, multi-angle, uh, if you're going to have, you know, in that, in that service, uh, a lot of things going on, you want to capture, you want to do it high def, et cetera, um, you're going to have a whole different situation and, and, and a more ramped up kind of apparatus and, and training has to be necessary. The point is that the number of pastors who have said to me, I just never considered we'd need to do this, is absolutely stunning to me. I don't mean to, to slap them around, but the fact is that we, we knew things like this might happen. 
Uh, a flood could happen. A tornado could happen. I mean, it's interesting to me that a tornado hit us in Nashville just weeks before this coronavirus thing hit. In fact, we're still recovering from the tornado while we're trying to get through a coronavirus. Um, a tornado could have produced the situation. As I say, terrorist action, uh, technical interruption, anything could have produced the need. Uh, a fire could have produced a need for some churches to go online. We've been through this before. We know the history. Um, not to mention, by the way, persecution and uh, governmental overreach and all kinds of other things that could break out. So what I'm saying is we did not consider the future. There's a great verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9 for those of you who are Bible readers, and it says, Jerusalem did not consider her future, and great was the fall thereof. We have to as not just people of faith, even though I'm using churches as examples, but as human beings, we have to consider the future. We have to be ready for the wolf at the door. And this is not the same thing as having a little bit of margin. This is a matter of considering what might happen and being prepared for it beyond our margins. And the idea that a church of any size in our generation, particularly in the United States, would actually be unprepared to stream their services, or at least the pastor sitting on his back porch teaching a service and who knows, somebody sitting next to him with a guitar, you know, to lead worship or something, that we wouldn't at least have that level of capability and preparation is crazy. If you listen to my last podcast, you know uh, that I believe churches need to be doing this as almost like a drill in the future, that at least one Sunday a year, uh, we need to do exactly what we were forced to do now with the coronavirus situation. Uh, We need to just have, call it what you will, online Sunday underground church Sunday, whatever you want to call it. But we need to do church completely online that day, the giving, the education, the worship services, uh, the checking on each other, uh, the making sure we have a network for social care. Uh, that's, That's absolutely essential. And we should have been doing it before now. Why didn't we do it? Because we violated Ecclesiastes chapter one and verse nine. We did not consider our future. And if we continue to do that, Great will be the fall thereof. Okay, thus endeth the lesson, thus endeth the sermon. I won't take up an offering. Uh, The fifth thing is this. We did not go global enough in our thinking. Our statesmen, our business leaders, uh, the American mentality was not global enough enough. You know, we have in our history a tendency towards isolationism. Uh, We have uh, in our history uh, a tendency towards manifest destiny. We're over here. We're by ourselves. We're in isolation. Uh, Don't tread on us. Don't come over here. Don't, don't, don't you, don't you foreigners come and try to mess in our pond uh, in our Western hemisphere. And that may have had some legitimacy at certain times in our history. Um, but what it's done now, and especially with this current president, who, who is saying some good things about our need to come home uh, and, and take care of business at home. You've already heard me urge such things in this podcast, um, but also has kind of an extreme version of it uh, in some cases. Uh, even now, then, we, we have a, a renewed surge towards an isolationism. But let me tell you about a conversation I had this morning. Um, I have to do a little traveling this coming week. Uh, and it's to help some, some organizations in this country. And so I'm going to get on the planes and, and risk a little bit of, uh, of exposure. Uh, I'm healthy. I'm fine. I appreciate you knowing that I'll be fine. Um, but, but my point is that I, in order to do that, uh, I had to fly, I had to work with my favorite airline, uh, on some flights. I, <laughs> I'll just tell you as an aside, I had a number of flights and half of them, more than half of them have canceled and had to be rebooked anyway. So I was working with Delta today on the phone to get all that straightened out. Well, a woman said, when I told her I was sorry for what she was going through as a Delta employee, uh, one of their agents said, we knew this was happening 
back in early January because they're a global airline. They said, they said, we began to see the cancellations and began to see the upheaval going on in China back in January. Well, now just think for a moment. In early January, people really weren't talking about this very much. Our government was ignoring it. People were making excuses. Left and right were accusing each other. We weren't trusting China. And so we didn't have a global view, but Delta as a global airline, uh, it already had a response system. So the, the, the signals had already been sounded, the alarms had already been sounded in their company. And she said, I've been dealing with this since early January. We knew the wave was coming and now it's here and it's going to continue for a while. She said, that doesn't mean all the isolation and the economic upheaval, but it certainly means we'll be dealing with the economic um, with the airline versions, airline implications of this uh, for quite some time. She said, we've seen these waves before and this is going to continue. Well, my point is that because we don't think as globally as we ought to in our public affairs, a business like Delta is well able to uh, tell us what's going on, tell us what's coming, signal this thing. Our business leaders, our government leaders need to be listening to business. We need to be more global. We need to be pay, paying attention to what's happening worldwide. I think a wise policy for the U.S. is, yes, to take care of the home fires, take care of home provisions, take care of the home folk, but still be part of the international community because now in a global age, you know, what happens in your country affects what happens in my country. And so we have to connect. We have to communicate. We have to have um, systems that allow us to warn each other. So to be more global in terms of our analysis, in terms of our connections, in terms of our working together, in terms of our being able to hear the signals on the other side of the world and the alarms on the other side of the world, this is essential. The good news in all this is we are going to get through it. We're already seeing the back edge. We're already seeing countries that were hard hit, having days where there's, there are no infections. We're already seeing the benefits of some things. We're already he hearing about some trial medicines working. Uh, we already are learning more and more of what works. And though the, the worst might still be yet to happen as I record this, um, here in the United States, the worst has already happened for a number of countries, and there are some countries that are not going to be very affected at all. So we will get through this. We will get through this. But this is our opportunity to be our generation's version of the greatest generation. You know, as a historian, I'm often thinking about lives and what people live through. And my father was born in 1930. Um, his older brother was born in the early 20s. Imagine a man born in 23. He grows up. He lives his entire teenage years and, and late childhood years during the Great Depression. He turns 18. Well, what's broken out? It's 1941. He goes off to World War II. He fights for four years in World War II. He finally comes back. He's 22. Now look what he's facing. Within a few years, there's going to be the Korean War. There's going to be economic difficulty. Uh, then he's going to have children. He's going to have to live through the 1960s and all the social upheavals of that. Think about that generation. Think about what they sacrificed. Think about how much suffering they endured. And we're going through a hard time now. But for most of us, I have to say, it's a matter of going home and watching television. For most of us, it's not going to mean total devastation. Still, it's a hard time. And what we need to realize is this may be our generation's opportunity to be the greatest generation. 
Not that we're in competition with our grandparents, but, but to live our version of what it means to be a great generation. And by the way, this is preparation for what's coming in the future. We are going to see cycles of epidemics again. We are going to see cycles of pandemics again. We are going to have economic upheaval again. We have been in our generation a relatively spoiled people. We haven't had a lot of that kind of thing. But as a guy who works internationally and uh, works a lot in the third world and have you know, been with people on the ground while wars are going on and, and so on, I can tell you that our history, our level of peace, our level of stability is not normal for most of the world. And it's not normal throughout most of history. Throughout most of history, you had plagues, you had wars, you had upheavals. It was rare for a generation to go by uh, that didn't have some very, very destabilizing events. So I'm not cursing us. I'm not saying the future's bleak. I think the future's positive. But we have to be ready for these cycles to come again. And I think this is an opportunity for us to learn and for us to emerge better than we've ever been before. Hear me again. We will get through this. Cling to God. Cling to each other. Stand strong. Learn the lessons. Apply the lessons. And let's be better on the other side. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker, and a frequent faith and culture commentator on Fox and CNN. His groundbreaking books on faith and society include the Faith of George W. Bush, The Search for God in Guinness, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and Lincoln's Battle with God. Learn more at stephenmansfield.tv.